You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants for this ninth Sunday after Holy Cross, in which we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Luke, continuing the, the uh, kind of Lucan cycle here. And we're going to, here in chapter 12 of Luke, uh, chapter 12, starting with verse 16. Welcome, by the way, Father Father Daniel. Welcome. Good to be here. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're at verse 16 in Luke chapter 12. So we're going to jump right into this text. And, you know, just before we do, just a little word of, of, of warning, as I usually do, you know, th- this is one of those classic parables of Jesus. It's so well known that there's sometimes a danger, kind of fall asleep in the text and not pay attention to details. Well, I got to tell you, there's a lot of details here. In fa- fact, Father Daniel put together for us some serious notes on all of this business. Thank you very much for this. It's it's quite extensive. There's a lot to lot to uncover here, and and and, and so it's going to require our attention. That's all I'm saying. Pay attention to the details because we're going to be kind of mining this text for all the all the all the treasure that's to be found here. Okay, so let's jump right in here at verse 16, chapter. What did I say? Chapter 12, verse 16. Mm-hmm. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, "The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully." And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, there it is. Uh, classic parable of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12. And, uh, and Deacon, I just ask you to um, jump into this as we, we normally do and kind of give us this, the lay of the land. Where is this gospel fitting into the, to the gospel narrative? Right. Uh, you know, and kind of paint the picture around this parable. Yeah, so, uh, you know, last time we were talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we may recall from that particular discussion that our Lord uh, was pretty much bringing to conclusion his his time in, in Galilean ministry, where he had spent the bulk of his, uh, his time in public ministry, and was now turning uh, with his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He's turning towards the royal city of David. And he's going to be inaugurating his glorious messianic kingdom, which is going to come in triumph, but not in the way that many of the Jews expect. Uh, they're expecting a, a worldly king of worldly glory, and he's going to enter into Jerusalem and in triumph, which he does on Palm Sunday, surrounded by the multitudes, 
you know, shouting Hosanna to the son of David and so forth. But the real triumph of our Lord and what he's really looking towards is uh, his crowning with thorns, his suffering uh, and his freely given passion and death on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ultimately his ascension to the right hand, uh, enthroned the right hand of the Father. So this is the true glory of the kingdom that he is inaugurating here. And so his face is set towards Jerusalem. And I think that's important to understand when we think about this particular passage. And like you said, I think it's, it's deceptively short and simple. And it, and it seems like, oh yeah, this is pretty clear what, what's being said here. But when we see it in that context of our Lord moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards his impending death, what will be ultimately the judgment on the city, then, then we start to see it in a, in a whole new light. And that's, that's what we'll talk about today. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right into that, see what's going on. And one of the things I want to talk about at some point here is the text which follows this text where Jesus talks about how God kind of takes care of the birds of the air and things. It's, it's, I think it's somewhat connected. But, uh, but let's jump right in here to chapter 12 and start to dig, dig for the gold, if you will. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned in terms of reading uh, verses after this particular passage, I think is a great practice. I do the same thing, you know, when I'm preparing for my homilies or uh, to give a teaching or just even prayerfully reading the scriptures. I try to put it in its context by reading either a few verses uh, beforehand and a few verses afterwards or maybe even a whole chapter because once we start to see it in context, we start to see, oh, this is this is what Jesus is, is trying to say to us. So if we start with chapter 12, just right at the beginning in verse 1, uh, we, we have a little bit of the setting for, for this, this parable that's, that's given by our Lord. It says in verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they trod upon one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Now what's interesting about that is that Luke makes reference to the multitude. And when we hear that word multitude, we should put on our, our both uh, both lenses of the Old Testament and the New Testament and be thinking about, oh, we've heard that phrase multitude beforehand, especially in relationship to the Exodus, when we had Old Testament Israel on pilgrimage out of Egypt, out of slavery and, and bondage in Egypt on the way to the promised land. They were often times referred to as the multitude. And they weren't always a happy multitude, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, especially, uh, you know, with uh, the leadership of of Moses and Aaron and Joshua. So there were, there were challenges there. But here we have this multitude, these throngs of people uh, that are gathered around to the tune of, of, of many thousands. And this kind of gathering, by the way, would have been very rare in, in first century Palestine, especially because of the Roman occupation. So just as you start to see crowds sort of gathering, well, if they're gathering by the thousands, you know, the Romans are gonna look at that very suspiciously and say, you know, what's going on here? But so apparently we're, we're in a setting <clears throat> where you're not gonna see the, the, the presence, the roving presence and, and the monitoring presence of the Roman soldiers as much. And so Jesus is, is giving a talk and it was very common at that time. You know, if you have uh, the, kind of the natural acoustics, maybe of a hillside or whatever, that a person could actually speak and be heard by uh, the multitudes, by the thousands. Um, and so Jesus, in the midst of this, the, these throngs of people, he turns to his disciples. So he turns to the 12, basically, and, he, and he, he's going to say something to them. It's kind of like an aside. And you could see this happening if you've ever been on a stage with a lot of people. You know, someone's going to talk to their intimate entourage before they go out on the stage to actually talk to the, to the, the larger group. Jesus turns to them and he says, uh, his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, <clears throat> again, thinking about this in context, Jesus turning to his disciples, basically saying, look, things that are done in secret are going to be announced to the throngs, to this multitude that you're seeing kind of clamoring all over each other. So this message that I'm, I'm giving now, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know, in other words, let your words be true. And this becomes an important thing to consider because really the theme of chapter 12 is going to be on the final judgment, uh, the, the judgment that is coming for all of us, the judgment individually in terms of our particular judgment, the judgment of all the peoples, and in this particular case, the judgment of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is warning them, uh, warning his apostles, and by extension, all those who are successors to the apostles and the bishops, priests, and deacons in the, in the New Testament, that, that we need to keep in mind that that the things that are done in secret will be announced to the throngs. And this idea of being on the rooftop, you know, you have these flat roofs. It was very common in those days that if, if you were going to have a, you know, get, if you were going to get CNN or Fox news, you know, it was going to come from the rooftop. It was going to be just shouting, you know, out people were going to come up. That's where they heard all the news of things going on in the city. So that was, uh, that was social media at the time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, the, what you're what you're describing here in there at the beginning of the chapter, I think, is something that's easily missed, and it's easily missed because I think you know we're used to seeing like these kind of quaint, pious pictures of Jesus and his Birkenstocks with his braided hair, and with like you know his his closest friends around him, and they're strolling along the nice Sea of Galilee, and everything. The flowers are popping up under their toes. But as a matter of fact, this this is like I mean you. Like you said, from a, from the perspective of the of the Roman Empire, this yeah. is a major situation that's brewing. Yes. And as you said about the multitude during the time of the Exodus, um, it wasn't always a happy crowd. And here you have it right there at the beginning of chapter twelve. He starts talking about the Pharisees because mm -hmm. this is these groups of guys are hanging around in the multitude, right? They're 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 in the crowds, and they're 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 not all on board. No, no, you they're know? not. And this thing's going to intensify the closer they get to Jerusalem. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think it's helpful no. because it paints the picture. Yeah, it does. And I think it's like we saw with the good, with the uh, Good Samaritan, uh, the account of the Good Samaritan and the scribe. You know, so you're exactly right. These these scribes and Pharisees are sort of seated in throughout the multitude. And you're right. There are some naysayers in the crowd. That was very common. There'd be debate. There'd be argument. There'd be discussion. What is the, what is the rabbi saying? And so uh, at, at this point, you know, Jesus is about to go out and, and talk to the talk to the crowds now. And so I'm not going to read the whole verse, but but Jesus then he turns and he says, and in beginning in verse four, he says, "I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have no more uh, that they can do. But I warn you." Whom to fear? Fear him, who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says, And not are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So again, coming back to this idea, this theme of judgment that is moving through the narrative and, and our Lord's words, He's, he's preparing, he's giving a discourse, and he's starting to uh, let them know that, look, the, the reason why we are judged is because God values us so much. If he values the sparrows who, you know, were just sold for a little copper coin, they were the, that was the food of the poor, 
uh, and yet God, God knows them, and God is aware of them, and He values them. If He values them, how much more should He value us? And so when it comes to the judgment that we are ultimately to face, uh, we're facing a judgment based upon you know, our great value uh, and, and the life that we have been given. And so the reflection here really is, you know, how do we evaluate our life, our words, our deeds, and even our possessions in the light of eternity? You know, from a supernatural perspective, this is this is the great and terrible day that, that's coming, and this is why Jesus says, you know, fear him who has the power to cast you into hell. Well, who is that? It's not the devil. It's it's a proper fear of God, uh, and applying that supernatural lens to our life. I I, I remember um, years ago I attended a conference. So this is going way back in the in the early '90s, where Father John Harden, who's now the servant of God, Father John Harden, great catechist, great teacher. I had read him in college, and I went to go hear him speak. And in the course of his presentation, which was one of the last that he gave before he passed away, he fell asleep in the Lord, as we say, he began by talking about, as I draw closer to eternity, this is what he said, and you could hear a pin drop in the room, as I draw closer to eternity, and he began to share his perspective on drawing closer to God, drawing closer to eternity. And it was a profound moment for me, uh, you know, as a young 20-something, uh, hearing this uh, great theologian, this great speaker, who had this supernatural perspective on his entire life. And it was his life seen from the perspective of eternity. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to, uh, to the seed he's trying to plant in both his disciples and in the crowds, to, to look at our lives from the perspective of eternity. You know, I, I came across, as we were preparing today, uh, this beautiful quotation from St. John Climacus. He says, the thought of death mm. is the most necessary of all works, mm. and he who hourly yields himself to it is a saint, and the remembrance of death, like all other blessings, is a gift of God. You know, and is, isn't that, uh, it's, it's, it's a powerful thought. I, I think most of the time we go about our life trying to avoid thinking about death. Yeah. The saint has it turned on the other, uh, the other way, right? He, this, is, this is the goal of his life mm -hmm. is to receive the reward for the journey, for the, for the race he's run. That's right. Um, it's like that, that beautiful, that beautiful uh, phrase at the, end of, uh, at, at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. This is the, the hope of the Christian. That's right. And uh, I'm sorry, I wanted to throw that in there because I think it's, it's, it's helpful in light of our current situation, the tendency we have, and this kind of almost a, a, a fearing yeah. of death, is an ignoring of death, okay, the whitewashing of death, right. uh, which is so prevalent in our, in our society today. It's true. And, and, you know, the Christian perspective on death is very different than any other, any other religion, if you will, or, or system or philosophy. Because through the resurrection of Christ, death has become one of three births. You know, the first birth being the birth of our mother, out of our mother's womb, our natural birth. The second birth being, uh, being born in the womb of the church uh, through holy baptism. And that third birth is that, that birth into eternal life through death. So death becomes that passage into eternal life because Christ has conquered death. And so we have this very different perspective on the meaning of death. But it is that moment of particular judgment when we come before our Lord. And I think that's, um, that I think is what St. John Climacus is getting at. You know, it's the keeping that, the fact that there will be an end that we'll, that we'll, we'll all face and we have to prepare ourselves for that. 
certainly Jesus in this particular passage is very aware of where he is going at that moment, because Jerusalem will represent that moment of his own death, his own entry into that mystery of death in order to give us the power of, you know, over death through his resurrection. You know, the, the gospel continues here, and I think we do do well to, to again, take that point you mentioned earlier about, about context, okay? And um, when we get into this, this story, the gospel that we have this Sunday picks up as the parable, but a parable in a, in a context of a conversation that Jesus is having. Exactly. And in verse 13, he says this, uh, One of the multitude said to him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who, who made me a judge and, and, and divider over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of the covetousness, for a, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told him this parable. So I think you, just if you don't mind bring these two together now for us. Yes, absolutely. So again, Jesus is interested in, in teaching here about keeping our life, uh, our words, our deeds, in the perspective of eternity and also our possessions. And so you have this matter of dispute. So it was very common in the first century, especially among the rabbis, uh, that they would be brought in from time to time or have a, have a, a case brought to them uh, for them to adjudicate or to arbitrate a decision around. And in this case, it's an inheritance dispute. So you know, the, the, uh, the man says, you know, teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. So he's asked to weigh in, to give a judgment. Of course, he takes a step back and, and asks the question, well, you know, who am I to do this? And it, but it was very common for rabbis. I'm going to, well, I'm going to cut you off there for a second. I got to jump in on that, on that kind of about who am I, because once you realize you painted this, this, this picture, right? All these guys are hanging around. They're all kind of kibitzing around about, you know, who, about what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying and so forth. And, and right. the crowd's a bit disturbed, right? And so, and I, I, I bet you anything, this guy that comes up is, is one of these guys is not really a follower of Christ. He's really one of these, and he's trying, mm -hmm. as, as often as happens, they're trying to trick our Lord, they're trying to set, set him up, you know? So yeah. Jesus, who am I? Because of course, he's not willing to accept him as the arbiter, he's not as the judge, right? Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, these are always, and can you imagine having thousands of people around you and people trying to trip you up publicly like that all the time and how, how challenging that must be. But, you know, our Lord is, you know, is the, so certainly the source of wisdom is wisdom itself. So, you know, he's going, to, he's going to navigate this effectively and he's going to use a parable to help lift the perspective of this, uh, of this, of this brother who is in dispute with his other brother, this plaintiff who has brought a case before Jesus in order to have him decide in his favor. And what's interesting about that particular case is that in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's very clear how inheritances were to be apportioned among uh, the remaining siblings. So the firstborn, in fact, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 17. Let's turn, uh, let's, let's, let's turn there together. Why not? Everybody, I hope you have your Bible out. You're not just listening because we gotta, we got to get the, old, the good book out here. So, And no cell phones, by the way. <laughs> so Deuteronomy is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? There, the Old Testament. That would oh, be uh, that's right. That's right. That would be one of the books of Moses in the Old Testament. What did you say? Chapter twenty, twenty-one, twenty-one, verse seventeen. All right. And uh, let's see. So it's it's uh, it's 
these are passages pertaining to the rights of the firstborn. And in fact, the context of this is uh, when, when, a, when a man has two wives and he loves one more than the other, uh, how, how is his inheritance to be divided? Is he going to give deference to the, the child of the, of the wife that he loves, uh, gives kind of short change the one that he doesn't love? But in fact, what, what's said here is if a man has two wives, he is, let's see, on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the disliked, who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the disliked, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first issue of his struggle. The right of the firstborn is his. Okay. So, so in other words, the right of the firstborn was something that was was certainly defended in, in Jewish law and custom. And so it was pretty clear that the firstborn son between these two brothers, you know, if one of them is the firstborn son, he's going to get the double portion of whatever his brothers would get. But Jesus doesn't go there. You know, it's interesting. He's brought this case and he's expecting to, to be asked questions. Well, who is the firstborn? You know, what is the inheritance and so forth and so on. But rather, Jesus takes the focus away from the specifics of the case. And he talks about the danger of covetousness. Uh, and the fact that life is more than the abundance of our possessions. Um, you think about, you know, Father, I know you've been there as well, you know, with people on their deathbed. What are they thinking about? They're not thinking about their possessions. They're thinking about their relations, right? They're thinking about their family. In fact, just before I came on with you today, I received a text message from a good friend who's, who's, uh, who was just present at the passing away of her father along with her mother. You know, it was, you know, this precious moment of this entry into eternal life uh, that we talk about. At that, at that time, at the time of death, nobody's thinking about what kind of car am I driving? You know, what, how big is my house? They're thinking about the family and the friends that are there or even the ones that aren't there because maybe, maybe they've had bad relationships or, or, or something has happened that's, that's ruptured that, that, uh, that friendship or that family relation. And so it's not about possessions. It's about God, and it's about our relations. And so Jesus is trying to elevate his view to take him out of this conflict. You know, we get caught up in conflict, and so he's, his emotions are probably running high. Go tell my brother to give, do this. But Jesus wants him to focus on what really matters. And so he tells a parable. And this is the parable sometimes called the parable of the, of the rich fool. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, parables, stories taken from day-to-day -day, uh, life, which has a deeper meaning. And, you know, these, these parables are intended to kind of point us to, to reflect on the wisdom of God, not necessarily the wisdom of man. And so Jesus, in uh, verse 16 to 21, if we go back to that, I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But he says, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there, there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, Jesus, again, talking to this multitude, you know, there's probably a large number of the multitude uh, who were not wealthy, uh, who, who didn't even own land, perhaps. And so they'd look at this figure of the rich fool, and they would be envious of this particular figure because he, look, what did he have? He had land, and he had a great harvest, uh, and in fact, he had, he had such a great harvest, he had to, had, was going to pull down his barn, so he had the wealth to, you know, kind of continue to pull in all of it and, and to gather in and, and to keep all of the, the possessions that were his. Uh, so they would have envied this man and Jesus knows this. And so he's, 
he positions this as the main character. And so he's gonna he's gonna take this, he's gonna he's gonna enjoy this and he's going to hold on to uh, through these these grain silos, he's going to hold on to all of his possession and and the uh, and the harvest. And then he says, "What's interesting?" He says, "And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods uh, laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry." Now, this phrase, "eat, drink, and be merry," we're familiar with. We probably have used it ourselves from time to time. You know, at a table full of friends, or, "eat, drink, and be merry." You know, this is kind of a, a common phrase. But in context, it should call to mind uh, a similar kind of phrasing from the prophet Isaiah. We, we drew from the prophet Isaiah when we were talking about the Good Samaritan. Well, we can also do that now with the Good Samaritan. So if we take out our Bibles again yeah. and we turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 22, he's really writing concerning a warning to the city of Jerusalem about its impending destruction. Because remember, this pertains to the, the, the destruction of the city that's going to come and ju the judgment of God upon the city. Um, and so it's an important thing to, th to think about when we read this. So if we look at uh, verses uh, 12 to 14, In that day the Lord of hosts called to weeping and mourning, to baldness and putting on sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us drink let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be forgiven you till you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Mm -hmm. So, so what, is the, what is the meaning here, and how does it relate to what Jesus is relating in the parable? Well, of course, in this particular text in Isaiah, uh, there's, there's, there's a coming destruction of the holy city and of the holy temple and all of its, its priesthood and and its people because of their sin. And so Isaiah and, you know, the prophets have been speaking and calling the people to repentance. But what, how are they responding? Ah, oh, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. They're going to, you know, have the fatted calf. They're going to drink the wine. So instead of engaging in penance, instead of game, engaging in fasting and wearing sackcloth and repentance, doing, you know, deeds of repentance, instead they are uh, enjoying the earthly fruits and, and the idle pleasures of life. And so, you know, in thinking about this illusion, perhaps, uh, that Jesus is, is uh, mentioning with the rich fool, what we're seeing is uh, Jesus talking about uh, the fact and, and the fact that Jesus is faced, facing Jerusalem, he's headed towards Jerusalem, there is a judgment that is coming. And that judgment isn't just for the rich fool. That judgment is also going to be upon uh, Jerusalem, and its priesthood, and its temple complex, and all the things about the holy city, and the idolatry of those who are going to reject the message of the Messiah, that there is a judgment that is going to come. And it's because we're not doing penance, we're not reading the sign of the times, we're not recognizing that this is the inauguration of the kingdom of the Messiah, who has been uh, longed for, and waited for, and, and prophesied about the prophets. And so, where we have hoarding of wealth, uh, and without concern for the poor and needy, this is where God's judgment is going to come down upon uh, his people. You know, we, as we get into this gospel this coming Sunday, you know, all of these, these gospels are given to us during this time are, of course, looking forward to the Feast of the Nativity. Right. And there's a theme, the liturgy of the second coming. 
and I've been mentioning that for a few weeks now, and it's it's just it, it starts it's, it gets more and more intense the closer we get that the nativity of Christ, which happened two thousand years ago, yeah, is today made present in the church in the liturgy. The the second coming of Christ is today made present in the liturgy, right. um, and 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 with the bringing together of these two things, also the reality of our life is today made present in the liturgy and all of this kind of question of how we prepared ourselves mm-hmm. is brought before us in our in our liturgical celebration and uh to, to really ask ourselves to stand before the lord and to ask ourselves the important questions that are the the, the real questions we should be asking ourselves of what we have invested in and right. as i stand before god today i stand before I stand at this this kind of almost this this turning point. Either either I'm going to invest in the things that are real and true and lasting, right? Or I'm going to, as this man did, be foolish. And and that moment of decision, that moment of death, if you will, that turning point yeah. in my life is today. And yes. it, not necessarily in five years or five days or you know, twenty years or tw- whatever it is, that that's not it's today. Because what I do today will matter for what I do, uh, how I live today will matter, impact how I live for all eternity. Absolutely. And, and we, we hear in the words of the rich fool, uh, you know, he's like, look, don't worry. You know, it's, you know, I've got, I've got time, you know, take, I'm going to, I've got time to tear down my, my uh, silos, my, my barns. I'm going to build up new ones. I've got all these plans. Well, (laughs) you know, we might have that thought one day. Oh, I don't have to worry about this. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, you know, I can repent tomorrow, or I can, I can turn away from from sin, or I can give of my goods to the poor. I'll do that another day. And yet, uh, we have sort of an immediacy of this of this judgment that comes down on this on this rich fool. And it's always good to keep in mind. Not that we that's always top of mind that you know we we want to do this because we could be judged. We want to do it for the love of God. Right. Um, but I think. That, that proper supernatural perspective, you know, seeing life, our life now in the view of eternity helps us to really prioritize. And a lot of, um, a lot of what we see today, especially in anticipation of the coming of the Feast of Nativity, you know, it's, it's very materialistic. It's yeah. in the now. It's eat, drink, and be merry, and all these celebrations, when in fact, people are surprised that this is a penitential season that we're, <laughs> we're entering into. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking about how, uh, and and regarding the liturgy too, that this all of this kind of cosmic thing about death and about and so forth, the second coming and all this, is is like it's right before us. Okay, yeah. and this this choice we make has everything to do with how we're going to live over the next few weeks, really, because it, because as you say, the the church sets before us a path toward a path toward encounter with God. Right. And the world is saying no, exactly what you just said, eat, drink, and be merry, right? We have all the Christmas parties before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I'm sorry to say, it's like having the, you know, the, the relationship before marriage, okay? It's like, <laughs> it's just not, not okay. <laughs> we have, and so the question is, how am I going to prepare? Not necessarily for the day of my, my, of my uh, 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 earthly death yeah. or... The, the second coming of Christ, how am I going to prepare for, for what's right in front of me uh, right. today? How am I going to live my life? And how am I going to prepare for the Feast of the Nativity? It'll make all the difference in the world 
whether yes. Christ is born in our life or whether, you know, Santa Claus comes sliding down the chimney. We prepare. You have, you have an expectation of what you want, and, and you prepare for it. And if we expect to encounter God, then, then we prepare for it. That's exactly right. And, and so, you know, in this chapter 12, in, in looking at our lives, our possessions, our words and our deeds in the light of judgment, you know, Jesus is really highlighting two common uh, sins, hypocrisy and covetousness, right? These are the things that, that Jesus is addressing. You know, the, the fact that this rich fool hoards his wealth and doesn't give to his brothers in need in, in need is, is actually an important part of this teaching. And, you know, as we enter into a penitential season, you know, yes, a season of fasting and we're concerned about foods. Of course, the, the true abstinence is the abstinence from sin, as St. John Chrysostom says. This is what our focus should be. But there's also the deeds of mercy, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, particularly almsgiving as, as part of the, our act of mercy and our prayer and acts of repentance. These are the, the things that really help to uh, reshape our lives according to the image and likeness of God as part of our preparation to receive Christ, who is the true image of the Father. So, so this, this idea of, you know, the, the acts of penance, the asceticism, it has a positive message too, which is that uh, we've been given these possessions in order that we might share them among our brothers and sisters who are in need. And that is definitely very much uh, tied to our, our season of, uh, of St. Philip's Fast or Advent, as it's sometimes called. Well, there's, you know, there's much, there's a lot we could say here, hopefully our pastor, whoever's given the, uh, the homily this Sunday, We'll kind of dig into this more, but I want to get back to this to the text itself. Yes, here in the Gospel of Luke, because there's more uh, that we can kind of mine from the from the from the context and the, the the surrounding areas. And I, I do want to bring up for just a moment, and not to get into in into the spiritual meaning, but in this in these verses following, in which Jesus says, he says, "Look at the birds of the air and the and so forth, and the flowers of the field, all these things, and how God takes care of them." It's important that when, when Jesus is describing uh, things, physical things, to realize that you know, he's a great teacher. Mm -hmm. And a great teacher doesn't just say, you know, think about how a rose smells. Yeah. A teacher takes a rose and has the students sniff it, right? Mm -hmm. this, and this is exactly what Jesus does. If you go to that area that he's, he's living up in, in Galilee and all the way down the Jordan River, yeah. They're beautiful birds, and and so he's seen the sparrows. He's seen there's a beautiful um a peacock, uh, not a peacock, a a, 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 a like a parrot. Yes. What's the small parrot? Uh, the parakeet. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a parakeet. It's it's like halfway between a a, a a parakeet and a parrot actually in size, and it's just covered. I'm gonna actually I'm gonna bring up I'm gonna bring up the picture of it here. Yeah. Okay. You you can you can see that. Um, and uh, th these these birds are flying all around the, the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan Valley. The, the flowers of the field are, are real. These are the fields Jesus is walking through. And, and you got to think he's heading to Jerusalem for Passover, which means he's in the springtime. Yes. You got to think about these things because this is the context. And then the multitude around him and the yeah. groups of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys are fighting, infighting going on. And it's only there that you can really see and, and understand what Jesus is talking about. So I'm going to get back a little bit and have a chance to get back more into this journey toward Jerusalem. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, and, and I think that brings us to that verse about 
what are how God responds to this rich fool where he says that God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So this idea of being rich towards God is and, and laying up treasures, where can we, or how can we relate that then in, in thinking about our Lord's journey towards Jerusalem? But one of the things that, that was known at that time and would have been known to the hearers of Jesus uh, is this concern about the corruption of the temple and its priesthood. Uh, the temple priesthood was, you know, when Jesus spoke about the wicked tenants, you know, who was he talking about? You know, he wasn't, he, he, was, he had someone specifically in mind. He had in mind what was going on at that time uh, regarding the priesthood. And there were so many counter temple movements that had developed as a result of this corruption, like the Essenes. You know, they basically said, well, I'm going off. We're going, we're not going to deal with the temple. It's not a, it's not a true priesthood anymore. Uh, you had the Pharisees who were trying as a lay movement to reform and prepare ourselves to be a true kingdom of priests. And of course, they fell into certain errors in their, in their rigorism as a result and, and lack of charity in the application of the law. Uh, and then you had uh, the Zealots, and they wanted to free Jerusalem from the corruption of Rome, of Roman interference and you know, Roman wealth. And, and, uh, but what was going on with the priesthood at that time? Well, what was going on at the time was that the, the priesthood, they, well, there are a couple of different things that were, they were going. One, you had a lot of embezzlement. Uh, you had a lot of bribery going on. You think about it, especially with the Roman authorities. Uh, you even had temple prostitution, or not, not temple prostitution per se, but the priests were engaged in, in, uh, in sexual sins and sexual immorality. And we, we see this kind of come to the forefront in Luke 19, where Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. Now, he doesn't mention all these other points, but why did Jesus come to cleanse the temple? Well, one reason, it's because that area really was designated for the teaching of the Gentiles, so that the priests could then teach Torah to the nations. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, but instead what they do? They made it a marketplace. And so the nations couldn't come in to, to, learn, the, uh, to learn and prepare for the gospel, uh, which was embodied in, in, in our Lord. Well, another thing that was going on at the time, the sacrifices themselves, they would raise the prices and work with, working with some of the exchange rates, they would uh, charge more for the sacrifices. And so the poor who could not afford uh, to offer the sacrifices that were prescribed in the law, they had to take loans out. They had to take loans out from the temple. And these loans were given at usurious rates. And so what was held up as collateral? What was the land? It was the, the land rights, the inheritance rights of, of the other tribes. Now, what's interesting about that is there was one tribe in Israel that was not to have any possession of, of the land. And we all know what tribe that was. Levi. The Levi, the tribe of Levi. They were the priestly tribe. So these priests who were of the tribe of Levi, you know, they were charging these usurious rates of interest to take, and, and, and when the, the poor could not pay the, the loans, they would take the land. And so they began to take possession of the land that was not to be theirs. Uh, God in, uh, in Numbers 1820 uh, is very clear. Who was to be the inheritance of the tribe of Levi? It was God himself. They were not to, uh, to take possession of the land, but instead they were doing that. Now, coming back around to the Gospel of Luke, how does Jesus begin his public ministry? He appears in the synagogue at Nazareth, right? This is one of the things that we know. And he announces a great jubilee. Now, a jubilee uh, was really a, a, an opportunity. And the great jubilee was uh, one where uh, 
we had the forgiveness, not just of sins, but the forgiveness of all debts and the restoration of land rights. Well, since Israel had returned, or Judah had returned from Babylon to uh, rebuild the city, there had not been one single great uh, jubilee in Israel. In other words, the land rights had never been restored. And so you have this great accumulation of land and wealth in the temple, and that with that accumulation of wealth comes corruption and sinfulness and the idolatry, because what had the temple priesthood done? It had built up its treasure on earth and not uh, seen, uh, seen the, their true treasure in heaven. And so this judgment of the rich fool, I think, isn't just one that applies to you know, anyone who happens to be in a, an inheritance dispute with, with their sibling. It really applies to, to the temple. And our Lord is going to come in and cleanse the temple, and he is going to, uh, as a sign of the judgment that is to come, uh, because of the corruption of the priesthood and, and, uh, and the temple, our Lord is going to cleanse the temple, and he's going to reestablish a new priesthood in righteousness. In fact, what's interesting is that the prayer is when, when we bless Father and we put on our stakarian, which is our very ornate baptismal garment, those prayers come from the prophet Isaiah. And this exact passage around the Jubilee that also talks about the priests of the other nations that are going to be serving the church, context of this, this Jubilee announcement, uh, that our Lord has in Luke chapter 4. This is actually, we are representatives of that jubilee, of that great deliverance that our Lord is going to bring about. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're the instruments of that in, in service to his kingdom. Yeah, there's just a big, there's just, as with all the parables of Jesus, there's like this invitation of like self-examination. Yeah. Uh, to ask ourselves, are we living out our baptismal calling uh, to be a people, really does your saying, to be a people of jubilee, to be a people of, that are granting uh, freedom to our brother instead of holding them in, in spiritual bondage, right. of granting forgiveness, of, uh, uh, of living and being rich in the things of God, investing in the things of God rather than investing in the things which are passing away. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and a real question of where our heart is. Um, and uh, as, as usual, and there's so many, there's so many kind of practical things uh, things for us that we take away you know, important points that we could take away from this gospel. Um, it, it's important that we just slow down, read it, and then be willing to do what's difficult, which is to kind of put this thing up as a mirror to us. Yes, absolutely. And, and it really is a mirror. And I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we might want to say, well, this parable is really being it's a parable for the laity. Uh, but in fact, it's a parable for the whole church. It's one that we always need to be thinking about. You know, where are our treasure? Where do we have? Are we are we trying to store up these earthly treasures? Uh, the same temptations that the Israelite priesthood uh, faced with the tribe of Levi, the temptations to the idols of wealth and pleasure and power. These are all things that we commonly face, whether we're clergy or laity. It doesn't matter. And our own interior temple needs to be needs to be uh, cleansed. And so, and and one of the ways that we do that is. We give of our own treasury uh, to others. So we're not creating more storehouses to create more things, to accumulate more wealth. We are giving of ourselves in terms of our time, in terms of our attention and, and energy and focus. And out of even our, our physical treasures, we want to share that uh, with our brothers and sisters. And coming into this season, this is really the time when it's our opportunity to, to cleanse the temple, uh, to give uh, of what we've been given uh, so that we can not be the rich full, but rather be more like our Lord 
and, uh, and his calling uh, to us in holiness. In a big way, the church is saying to us, wake up. Yeah, the exactly. Nat- the, the, the nativity is coming. Christ is coming. To ask us a simple question this, this Sunday, and that is, where is our treasure? Where, what is the treasure of our life? You know, what do we, what, what do we, if someone were to look, I often think about this, somebody were to see my life as, as they do, right? My neighbors, my uh, coworkers and so forth. Where, what would they say is the most important thing? I mean, what, do I, what am I talking about all the time? What am I thinking about all the time? What am I, what am I doing all the time, right? And, uh, you know, there's some really kind of practical, I'm going to lay it out there, some really practical things we can ask ourselves. Um, one is just kind of how do we spend our time? You know, there's classic thing, the time, talent, and treasure are big questions for us. Right. Where, am I, where am I spending my, where am I, do I get up at six and seven o'clock every morning to go off to work, and uh, um, and then on Sunday morning, do I sleep in till ten or eleven? Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, or do I do I roll into do I get into work on time every day because otherwise I'm gonna get, get canned? Or uh, and, and but then when it comes time for the Lord, I, I come into church late. It's a big question because you know it's the, the Lord. He's not blind. He's not stupid. He's like, uh, we have this. We have to paint the whole. Okay, well he's like he's just such a nice guy. You know, God does, it's okay. You know, you're remaking God in your image and likeness. Okay, let Him be who He is. Okay, so, right. um, and uh, you know, and um, so do, you know, do we do we spend uh, more time watching CNN in the yeah. evening than than we do praying night prayers? You know, there, there's some real practical questions about how we we spend our money. We we are we filling up our bank accounts? But when it comes time to be, you know. This happens all the time, and I'm sorry to be so practical here as we conclude, but I think it's important. Right. Questions have to be asked to us. Yeah. When I, I spend all my day working to kind of put up, put money away, put money away, put money away for the bank account, you know, mm-hmm. and then the basket comes around on Sunday, or or um, or, or or Father starts talking about do, you know donations and things. Oh, our ears go closed. <laughs> suddenly, our our bank account's empty. You know, it's like, right. you know, do, do we think? God is blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's so he puts this 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 parable in front of us today, and I you know I wrote down a question as I was just preparing here, and it, it is this: when the when the days of this life are ended, mm-hmm. will the Lord say to us, "Wise and faithful servant, mm-hmm. come inherit the kingdom prepared for you," mm-hmm. or will he say, "You fool, mm-hmm. depart, for I never knew you." Um, and uh, I'm just going to leave you guys with a quotation here. That one I've, I came across a few years back. I've held on to it because I think it's quite a blessing. It's quite, quite beautiful. And uh, it says this, How important is it to offer to God, to pour out to him that which is within? When we live with thanksgiving rather than with bitterness, rather than with self-absorption, when we live with gratitude rather than fear and complaint, when we live, with the, when we live the Eucharistic life, then we are able to be filled with the blessings of God, blessings that prior to that time we were closed to receive, blessings of release, blessings of mutuality, blessings of future hope. You know, there's so so much before us here in the next few weeks of how we're going to live our life, and an invitation to live that Eucharistic life, to live that life as you were mentioned, the jubilee of, of the life of forgiveness, yes. the life of self-giving love, uh, or or the opposite. And we're challenged with that today. So thank you, uh, Father, 
and uh, for, your, for your beautiful insights. Oh, thank you, Father. I, I just one other point that I would make is if we, if we understand what the priesthood is and the fact that we are called a royal priesthood, that priesthood is, is an offering of sacrifice. And it's all those aspects of our life. We invest ourselves and we put ourselves in the things that are most important. That is part of our priesthood. And so, uh, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's live a vibrant priesthood uh, as baptized, as members of, of the baptismal priesthood, uh, especially during this time of fasting. I think that's, uh, that's certainly the, the message that we can take away today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you all. And uh, please pray for our work here as we continue to, to uh, bring the word of God to the faithful so that we can live a more a faithful life and be challenged with the word of God and, uh, and conform our, our life to his will. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.